Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. Finally, back in our own digs. And we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite, Otto Preminger. Skedero, <laughs> Now, this is a director that I don't think I had ever dived into his work. I knew of him. I had seen his classic film, Anatomy of a Murder, mm. uh, starring Jim S. Stewart. I don't know why I put him <laughs> Jim, Jim S. Stewart? <laughs> As his fans like to call him. Okay. <laughs> And he always kind of fascinated me, though, mm-hmm. because he was around for a long time. And the fact that he went completely independent from the studios in the mid-50s always fascinated me. Mm-hmm. So thanks to this podcast, I could finally watch a bunch of his movies. And I found myself a little bit conflicted with his work in the sense that we talked last time of, is he an auteur? Mm-hmm. And I remember that in uh, Cecil B. Demented, the classic John Waters film, Stephen Dorff has a bunch of director's names tattooed on his arm, mm-hmm. including Otto Preminger as like an auteur. Yeah. And I recall reading a review where someone was like, Otto Preminger's not a fucking auteur. He is the head of studio hack journeyman. Okay, but he was also claimed by the Cahiers du Cinema crowd as an auteur. In an article by Jacques Rivette, But what's interesting about that article is that he can't pinpoint thematic concerns that Preminger has. Mm -hmm. What he keeps saying is like, oh, I like the way that he moves people like a puzzle in a physical space. Yeah. So so he was always a bit of an anomaly in that sense. Yeah. And uh, Chris Fujiwara recently wrote a biography of him that takes great pains to talk about how uh, Preminger's perspective on the world, you know, the world and its double and what Mm -hmm. is real and what isn't and interrogating that. And uh, like, I don't know, it's it's a good book, but I, I find some of it unconvincing, frankly. It's definitely some stretching to fit Otto into this one box. I've, I've, I'm not a massive fan of Otto Preminger, although he's made uh, several movies that I think are great. Mm-hmm. But I've always been fascinated by him for a few reasons. One is that he was considered an auteur by the Kaye crowd, and I could never quite figure out why. Mm-hmm. Another is he's a director who is as known for his personality and his showmanship uh, and his kind of off-screen persona. Yeah, it uh, goes Eric von Straheim, who was kind of a tyrant on set, mm-hmm. and then right under him, Otto Preminger. Yeah, and Preminger had a visibility showing up on talk shows that was comparable to someone like Alfred Hitchcock. And Otto Preminger, also famous for playing Mr. Freeze on the Adam West Batman show. And most people also know him in cinephile circles as the guy that discovered Jean Seberg, mm-hmm. the star of Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, mm-hmm. and also... Treated her like fucking garbage. Yeah, that's a, that's another thing that's fascinating about him. The fact that he was such a tyrant on set. Mm-hmm. And the last thing that I'm fascinated by about him is he's, in my head, the perfect example of the director who used to be good and then the last 10 or 15 year, years of his career are bad. Like, really bad. And then and what happened? You know, he's the quintessential guy who got really out of touch in his old age. So, Autumn Preminger was born in Poland. Like to tell people he was from Vienna because that was kind of a theme in his life that he liked hanging out with the rich or the upper class, if you want. He had a very privileged upbringing. He was very well-read from a young age. Uh, When he was 17, I think he started a career as an actor and even acted in Max Reinhardt's famous theater company for a brief period. And he became a very famous director of theatrical productions. Mm -hmm. And that led him to Hollywood, where like anybody who is a big star in their native country, when they come down to America, they're forced to make little noir pictures, Mm -hmm. which is how he started. And he was famous 
famous for delivering things on time and on budget. But it was in 1944 that his career really starts. Uh, and Preminger, I don't think even much liked to talk about the movies he made before 1944. Yeah, and- he had a big feud with Daryl Zanuck uh, over a film called Kidnap that was an adaptation of the Robert Louis Stevenson novel, which he was fired from. But then he made good because he kind of became the guy that would take over troubled productions. Yeah, so Daryl Zanuck, the head of Fox, uh, was off working on wartime propaganda films and Preminger was preparing a film called Laura from 1944, uh, which he wanted to produce and direct. Then Zanuck came, uh, said, you can't direct this movie. We're going to give it to one of our really good directors, Ruben Mamoulian. A really good director, but like Preminger, late in his career, wasn't doing too hot. So Laura, which would become Preminger's most famous movie, probably. Other than Anatomy of a Murder, yeah, I would probably say so. Uh, he was nominated for Best Director mm. from it, and it kind of made him the cause celeb in S- Tinseltown. So Mamoulian started directing it, was fired after... Maybe three weeks. Three weeks, and Preminger was parachuted in, reshot all of his scenes. I, I don't think there's any Mamoulian footage in the movie. And in fact... He so took over it that, you know, there's the big portrait in the movie of Laura, which Mamoulian's wife originally painted. He had that portrait taken down and he had a photo of the actress Jean Tierney shot blown up and had somebody paint over it so that there would be like no trace of Ruben Mamoulian in the movie. For people that don't know what the plot of Laura is, it's a film noir about a woman that's murdered named Laura, played by Jean Tierney. And the detective, uh, played by Dana Andrews, who's trying to figure out who could have done it. Was it the rich socialite that she uh, liked to hang out with? Was it Vincent Price (laughs) being Vincent Price? The rich socialite is uh, Clifton Webb, who is a columnist, a, what was he, he a reviewer? Gossip columnist. Gossip columnist. What's going on around town? And uh, he's probably gay. I think his character is coded as gay, but um, even though he's apparently in love with Laura... And we're introduced to him sitting in a marble bathtub with his typewriter, like, positioned on on a bench above him. And he's, like, pounding away at it. It's interesting that Mamoulian was fired because supposedly the problem that the producers had with the rushes that they saw is that he was directing them very overdramatically. And it was just too over the top. Mm -hmm. So when Otto came in, what he ended up doing was directing it like he directs most of his films. Very cold and you have to make your own decisions about what's going on. He's not a director that likes to use close-ups very much. Uh, Vincent Price in an interview commented that uh, in Ruben Mamoulian's version, you didn't get the sense that everybody was deeply evil, mm-hmm. which which you do get. Like, no, nobody is to be trusted, and everybody has this kind of, like, sinister sinister edge that's a little bit hard to pin down. Yeah, like, you, it's difficult to figure out, like, who is the straight-up bad guy in the movie. And even the detective wants to fuck the portrait of the dead girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, he falls in love with the dead girl, and even even Laura is kind of a, a bit of a cipher, frankly. Mm. Uh, it's hard to, you know, get a sense of who she is. Like, is she the innocent girl that we hear in one story, or is she more kind of manipulative? It, and the movie never even actually underlines which one is the truth. Like, yeah. the audience will probably come out with whatever picture that they can make up themselves. I think one of the things I like about Preminger when he's at his best is that his films feel very adult. Mm-hmm. And they're 
not only is he very interested in you know in in his later movies like anatomy of a murder he's very interested in process uh and you know a, a later movie like advise and consent which is all about the wheelings and dealings of the senate trying to confirm a secretary of state candidate he's interested in like uh backroom dealings and conniving and uh, negotiation and you know anatomy of the a murder is a very unsentimental depiction of the criminal justice system there's a finality to anatomy of a murder like the case ends but the viewer is still left like wait i spent two and a half hours and the bad guy got off yeah like is this right i like what is supposed to go on and i think that's something that's really powerful about Otto Preminger's work is that while he was someone that in all of his films loved to break taboos like he did stuff in his films that you never saw before whether it be uh coded gay characters or even just straight up gay characters. Advise Consent has a character who's being blackmailed because during the war he had a gay affair with another soldier, uh, but now he's a family man. And the movie doesn't even bother, like, it, it was actually the first movie to depict a gay bar. And I'm really impressed by the fact that Otto Preminger would do these things, but at the same time, if you read him talk, he did these things because he wasn't allowed to. Yeah. In the sense that, like, he knew it would generate press. He loved to fight censors. To the point that his um, heroin addiction film that starred Frank Sinatra, The Man with the Golden Arm, actually went out into theaters without the production code seal of approval. Well, that's one of the things that makes Preminger interesting because he was, you know, an intelligent man. He was a liberal man. Um, and he he was a man who believed in what he did, but he was also a producer and a ballyhoo guy. And you're not, and you're not quite sure, you know, where does where does the producer end and the director begin? And his films are all about people having dialogues about difficult things while on set he was a tyrant that nobody could offer their opinion or any criticism. It was his way or the highway. But getting back to the adult nature of his films, his films trust the audience a lot and and trust the audience to be okay with ambiguity. One of my favorite of his films is Daisy Kenyon, which uh, stars Henry Fonda, again Dana Andrews and Joan Crawford in a love triangle and it's a it's it was ostensibly kind of a woman's picture melodrama where uh, Joan Crawford is in love is married to one man but in love with another man like nobody is a bad guy in it and you can kind of understand where everybody's coming from uh and the movie ends justly but it's there's just a lingering air of was that a happy ending or, yeah. or a bad one? And also so much of the movie is about the difficulty of, you know, if, if you're with somebody who you love, but there's also you have these feelings for this other person that you sort of love. And how do you reconcile that? Well, I think that's very apparent in the way that Preminger directs his films. Like that's what Rivette loved about them mm-hmm. is that he uses very wide frames and he lets things play out in them Mm -hmm. with, there's a lot of blocking in the sense that people move around, but he's never telling you, look at this or look at that, or this is the center of attention. He's just letting it play like a theatrical production. And by that, and, and that's not what people are often used to when it comes to a directorial voice. They're used to someone guiding them, which can lead to something feeling not personal, but at the same time, it's very personal. Yeah, like the the can he's a master of the camera. You know, a movie like Laura has you know very long takes and very fluid camera movements. So it's not it's not stagey in the way that it's presented. It's not stagey, and the camera is not judgmental, but it's also it's not completely impartial either. Like the camera is curious, the camera is is roving. But but it's not forcing a judgment on anything. And 
Andrew Saras in his book, The American Cinema, pointed out that one of Preminger's visual trademarks is to have... Uh, take a shot, because we yeah. mentioned Andrew Saras in The American Cinema. He's on He's on the Mount Rushmore of this podcast, <laughs> for sure. But he points out that one of Preminger's trademark shots is uh, a two-shot with one person on the left of the frame and one person on the right. And as Saras writes, I think very well, uh, the conflict is not between right and wrong, but between the right wrong on one side and the right wrong on the other. It's not just about having a dialogue and coming to an agreement. It's that all these people are bad, but you as a viewer have to decide what shade of bad are you going to agree with? Yeah. Because life is difficult and you have to make tough choices. So he is an auteur. What do you want? (laughs) We've talked ourselves into it. I mean, Pauline Kael would disagree. She was not a fan of Otto Preminger. He's, I guess, I guess if you want to, you know, really analyze his visual style, you can find a consistency there. Mm. But in terms of the topics he tackled, he did a Francois Sagan book as Mm. Bonjour Tristesse. Uh, He did. He was like the king of the popular paperbacks. Yeah. That he would bring to the big screen in blockbuster form. Yeah, especially when he was a, as an independent producer in kind of his prestige period. Uh, Ooh, which is the roughest period of his career. As Rivette mentioned, most auteurs, you know, start with their theme and then and they have their key preoccupations and they work from there. But Rivette says that Preminger first believes in mise-en-scene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how things are presented and then the themes can come out of that, whatever his preoccupations may be at this particular moment. So, after we've lauded Preminger for about 15 minutes, it's time to talk about Skidoo, a famous film before it recently got a Blu-ray release by Olive Films as the picture that Otto Preminger made to be cool. Basically his, hello fellow children. Yeah, and it, it was a movie that I think like I think it was maybe the Preminger estate who wouldn't let it be shown. Mm-hmm. It never showed at any of his retrospectives. And I saw it for the first time 10 years ago on a, like a bootleg DVD that I rented that was came from a source that was taped off TV. Well, it was one of those like famous lost films. Like yeah. it's never going to get released. Yeah. And I think there's value in that while you can go to YouTube and it's on there now. Yeah. <laughs> like just search Otto Preminger's Skidoo, but you shouldn't, you should buy the olive Blu-ray disc or rent it from your local video store that's how I watched it this time. And it was, it was like a breath of fucking fresh air. Like it looked beautiful. My really? God. Like I, I hadn't seen it in widescreen before. So yeah. it, it was actually one that I avoided because every review said that it was a giant piece of shit. And it is, but I have to say, I really uh, found myself kind of enjoying it this time and feeling affectionate towards it. I don't think you did though. So right? this is the film that Otto Preminger made in a bid to make himself relevant, tackling things that were on the cusp of popular culture, hippies, the use of LSD, the prison complex, I guess. Yeah, this, this movie came out in 1968 and to prepare for it, uh, Preminger actually dropped acid under the supervision of Timothy Leary. Oh, God, acid God's king sake. himself. Yeah. Who and, also appears in the trailer of the film saying that, you know, modern audiences could probably groove to this picture. They, they had a interesting way to sell this movie because Timothy Leary's in the trailer and he says something like here's a movie you can that you can you can bring your parents to to get them turned on you'll see the older generation getting turned on and that seems to me like a desperate attempt to sell this film which no kid would want to see but this is a film that only exists for the greatest generation the people who like live through World War II because it's packed with 
actors that they would know. You have like Jackie Gleason, uh, Carol Channing, Frankie Avalon. Uh, Frankie Avalon's there for the kids. <laughs> Mickey Rooney. Uh, three Batman villains, uh, Cesar Romero, Burgess Meredith, and Frank Gorshin. I guess that um, Otto made friends on the set of Batman, even though he did not make friends with Adam West, who thought he was a giant bully. <laughs> and so all of these people, including Mickey Rooney, at that phase of his career where he looked kind of normal uh-huh. before he became the M- Mickey Rooney me and Will know <laughs> and that after the Mickey Rooney as a child. Yeah, so he's just kind of middle-aged Mickey Rooney. Yeah, exactly. But of course you've forgotten the, the key cast member in the film. Who I, I was just saving it for you. Uh, uh, Groucho Marx in his final screen role. That at, they fucking grabbed out of the coffin he was laying in, at, forced him to paint that grease paint mustache. Because for years, you know, Groucho had just like grown his own mustache, but Preminger insisted that he put on that grease paint mustache again. Uh, well, like, what did Preminger have on Groucho that forced him to make this movie? Groucho looks terrible in this film and he's he's old he's 77 so he's not he's not the same grouch you know what it reminded me of was those like three stooges color shorts that we watched we did a three stooges episode where like groucho is doing like z level like marx brothers bits by himself yeah and it's kind of sad like him pretending to not be able to hit an eight ball while playing pool and apparently preminger was very mean to him on the set and uh, there's a story from the making of this film where uh carol channing said to groucho god otto is so energetic somebody should shoot otto shooting this film and uh groucho said somebody should just shoot otto <laughs> Well, I think that that energy doesn't really translate to Skidoo, because it is a plottingly paced film. So here's what the film is about. Uh, Jackie Gleason stars as a gangster who's settled down to a life as a family man with his wife, Carol Channing, and his daughter, and his daughter is dating a hippie. Uh, But he gets called in by Cesar Romero and Frankie Avalon for one last job at the order of the the mobster, the king of the mob, uh, Groucho Marx playing a character named God. I got to point out that this plot doesn't really come up until 15 minutes into the film <laughs> because we watch a television screen with sub-cracked magazine bits <laughs> that play for like 10 minutes yes. that open the picture. And I was like, oh my God, is this what it's going to be the entire time? So the mission that Jackie Gleason has to do, and Groucho Marx gets him to do this by kidnapping his daughter. Uh, Jackie Gleason has to infiltrate Alcatraz as a prisoner and kill another prisoner played by Mickey Rooney. Rooney, who is going to testify against God at the Senate committee hearing or whatever. Otto <laughs> ah, Preminger and his love for processes. <laughs> and, and from that point on, the plot stops mattering that much. There is a point when uh, Jackie Gleason's cellmate, played by Austin Pendleton, who's a draft dodger, Austin Pendleton, all of his envelopes are laced with LSD. So when Jackie Gleason tries to seal an envelope, he goes on an acid trip. Pretty unpleasant one, I have to say. <laughs> And it's one of, you know, put put it in the pantheon of horrible attempts to simulate an acid trip in film. <laughs> this is a film made by a grandpa for other grandpas yeah. about how kids are. Oh, and I guess the other subplot is that Carol Channing befriends daughter's fiance and all of his uh, hippie friends, and she gets really into the hippie lifestyle. 
I think this movie has one funny scene. What is that scene? It's when she goes over to Frankie Avalon's yes. house. Where it's classic um, slamming door comedy where like characters are coming in, other characters are hiding. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? That scene is amusing. Carol Channing is funny. Yeah. So, and that scene just lets her go. Jackie Gleason as a sweaty mafia hitman <laughs> trapped in prison for 80 minutes of this movie. Not that funny. Yeah. This is a film that's 108 minutes. No comedy should be that long. I was entertained throughout. But I think that you have a kind of affinity for these actors that me personally, I don't have. You're right. I like most of the people. Because I was like, Jackie Gleason, what has he been in? Oh, yeah, The Honeymooners. Yeah. Uh, I like most of the people in it. I like the spirit of the film in a way because, and you probably got to disagree with me on this, but (laughs) like I see Otto doing this and trying to reach out to the youth market and I almost want to be like, you know, pat him on the head. Yeah, you can just feel the flop sweat with every frame it's nice that you're trying to do this it's nice that you're trying to understand the kids <laughs> like at this time the french new wave was just kind of hitting its stride and people like louis ma was making uh the zazie that like zucker brother style uh-huh. film and then otto was probably like i can do that too and yeah. then he makes this this like, is a movie where harry nilsson sings the end credits yes every single end credit he sings i was a little bit disappointed i thought there was gonna be no on-screen credits and it was just gonna be him singing them <laughs> nah they're on there and like goofy animated stuff. Uh, Did you ever hear the story about Bob Dylan in connection with this movie? No. So Otto Preminger tried to get Bob Dylan to write a song for the film and he screened a rough cut for Dylan and uh, at his his house, uh, at Preminger's house, and Dylan left without saying anything and then he called Preminger and said, hey, can I watch the movie again but I have to watch it alone with my wife in your house. And Preminger said, okay, sure. And they ran it and never heard from Dylan again and it turns out that Dylan just liked the way Preminger's house looked and <laughs> wanted to bring his wife so they could look at it and see some, like, get some tips for decorating. <laughs> That's amazing! <laughs> because I mean, if you're interested in all these actors or even the premise, I would say see the movie mm-hmm. because it is an object. It's not a funny one you know i can understand somebody uh feeling affinity for it like you do mm-hmm. the same way that i have affinity for steven spielberg's 1941 sure not a funny movie by any stretch of the imagination but the attempt that's on screen like you said pat on the back or pat on the head to be specific but this must have been so disappointing for Otto because he had this 10-year period in the 50s and early 60s of just like one controversial subject after another i watched Man with the Golden Arm this week, Mm -hmm. and I thought it was pretty good, but I kind of had to put myself in the headspace of being in the 50s because this would have been the first movie to really tackle heroin addiction and to, like, you see Frank Sinatra shooting up, you see him going through withdrawal. It's very Frank, and this sort of stuff has become very familiar Mm. since then. Yeah, well, it's become a cliche. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the kind of melodrama people lean against for an easy, like, oh, I want you to get invested, Mm -hmm. when, like you said, no one had ever seen this before. Like, they wouldn't even give it a rating yeah. or pass it so it could play in theaters. And, and he also went up against the Catholic Legion of Decency a lot, which used to be very powerful at the time. <laughs> Enemy and, of the important cinema club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he made a movie called uh, The Moon is Blue, which had the word virgin and it had the word pregnant mm. in it. It got a condemned seal from the Catholic Legion of Decency. And Anatomy of a Murder... Because it's at a trial that involves rape, it has people talking about sexual climax, sperm. The one change he made to get a production code seal was to change the word from penetration to violation. Mm. So, um... Otto, you should have stuck to your guns. I know, compromised. (laughs) Like you said, because he was independent, 
he could tackle all these things. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, you just get old and you just don't know like what's important anymore. Yeah. So then there are movies like, you know, later movies like Hurry Sundown. Famous for having Michael Caine with a Southern accent, which just picture it in your head. (laughs) That's what it sounds like. Yeah. This was Otto's big attempt to deal with race relations. And the other thing that it's famous for is there's a scene where um, Jane Fonda plays a saxophone for Michael Caine. And she's like on her knees playing the saxophone and he's sitting in a chair in front of her. And it's supposed to look like a (laughs) blowjob. Like it's supposed to be suggestive. (laughs) But like, he still has a filmography filled with movies that we didn't even get a chance to mention, like Carmen Jones, mm-hmm. which was like an all-black musical that came out in 1954. Bonjour Tristesse is a beautiful film. Even late in his career, right before Hurry Sundown, he made Bunny Lake is Missing, which is considered a classic film noir. Mm-hmm. So he still had it in him, but it was just that those last few movies in his career were woof. Man, I saw Such Good Friends, which was a movie he made in the 70s, kind of supposed to be kind of like a, a sophisticated upscale New York Upper East Side comedy. In fact, it's written by Elaine May. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just boring as hell. Yeah. You can see in those last films which you talked about and made fun of yourself for saying the distillation <laughs> of an artist's work and like what happens when it just doesn't click, yeah. but he's still doing what he's always done. Man, I saw his last movie, The Human Factor at uh, the Cinematheque in Paris and it was a bad movie, but it's one of the best movie-going experiences I've ever had because I got to be there in the Cinematheque watching this late-period Otto Preminger movie and being like, boy, I really feel like I'm Jacques Rivette right now, you know? <laughs> I, I, you were talking too fast. I couldn't make fun of you when you said Cinematheque of Paris. But that's what Cinematheques are for, to see these shitty movies that never get shown by famous filmmakers or just kind of C-listers. Yeah. That's what we need to bring back in Toronto, is we need to see, like... Full uh, retrospective of filmmakers that you'd go, what? I don't want to watch that film on the big screen. Why would I see that? Yeah, yeah. And make it $5 so me and Will will go. Oh, I have uh, one last uh, thing about Otto Preminger. So obviously a famous bad man. I'm sure you've heard the story about him making St. Joan, his Joan of Arc movie. Yeah, so he cast Jean Seberg, like we mentioned earlier in the podcast, and he plucked her from obscurity. They did a big contest where they wanted to get a young unknown to play Joan of Arc. Uh, so it would have more of an impact mm-hmm. in his words. And what he ended up doing was controlling her life, calling her a piece of garbage on set mm-hmm. and just making her feel like shit to get, I guess, the performance that he wanted out of her. Which I haven't seen the movie, but is not regarded as a good performance. No. And famously, when he shot the scene of her being burned at the stake, he like he actually tied her to a stake and lit the... The Kindle. Yeah, he lit, he lit the Kindle and... There's a, a shot where like some flame like like almost flies into her face and she looks horrified. Well, and it did. It actually burned her. Yeah. And so that if you see the movie, like you're actually watching somebody fearing for her life. And when she complained about it afterwards, Otto went, yeah, but you can see it up on screen. Yeah. He is a bad man. So that's bad. The listeners can write us letters. Yes, they can. Ask us questions, comments, disagree with what we said agree with what we said me and we'll love that yeah yeah you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and this week uh we gave a little bit of a prelude to shocktober with our patreon episode because we talked about orgy of the dead what is this movie will it's written by ed wood and it's probably the most famous film that ed wood was involved in in the um soft and hardcore pornographic era of his career and you're definitely going to want to listen to this episode especially if you uh enjoyed our last ed wood podcast and went huh 
I wish they'd talk about the pornographic novels that he wrote because <laughs> it's in there. $5 a month on our Patreon, search Important Cinema Club, Patreon, and you'll get four exclusive episodes about real deep dives, like personal things from me and Will, yeah. like Orgy of the Dead, which is very close to you. Yeah, we're letting our freak flag fly a little more <laughs> on the Patreon. So, like I mentioned, it's Shocktober. It, not yet. It's going to be Shocktober. I know. I'm so excited. It already feels like Shocktober. <laughs> oh! next week we're gonna be doing a special episode where something that i used to like to do uh when i wasn't an old man like i am now was have a horror film festival when october would roll around and what me and my friends would do would be watch 24 hours of horror movies so i'm gonna pick six movies that i would program in a 24-hour film marathon Will's going to pick six as well. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a little bit of a hint of what you're going to go towards, Will? The guiding theme for me is going to be at night when you're falling asleep. <laughs> like, I want my lineup to be... I'm the kind of guy who falls asleep after midnight. Just, yeah, you just, don't do marathons. Just instantly. So I want a, a horror film festival where you're going to be kind of like coming in and out of consciousness and one that will fuck your brain up. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I think that's probably the angle that I'm going to go as well because... Mm -hmm. People that know me may be like, well, he's going to program all the craziest films, won't he? Having done a bunch of 24-hour film festivals, all the craziest films do not work when you watch them all back-to-back. -back. It's exhausting. People don't want to watch In them. In fact, I'm showing Justin right now the five that I've already curated. <laughs> oh, wow. Some of those I don't even know. Yeah. So you're so going to have to uh, listen to figure out what those are. Yeah. Until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I saw Mother yesterday, the latest from Darren Aronofsky, which has been a very divisive film. A lot of love it, a lot of hate it. I don't know if I loved it, but I did like it. Do you like Aronofsky's work previous to this? Um, I'm, I'm mixed on it. Yeah, you know? he, I mean, he's a filmmaker who is very obvious. Like, yes. he's in your face with stuff like Requiem for a Dream or even something like Noah, which is kind of subversive in its mm -hmm. own way in the sense that it's telling a Bible story and painting it across the canvas of, like, mm -hmm. a fantasy post-apocalyptic genre blockbuster, but it's still, like, in your face. There's not much subtlety there. Yeah, and, like, in Mother, when I figured out what the metaphor was, mm -hmm. I felt like I got it. Yeah. But having said that, I, en I enjoyed Mother as a visceral experience. It's yeah. a very well-made film. I think that... It Aronofsky is at that weird kind of balance in the sense that he is an art house director, but he's making like really in your face movies whose messages could be written in the tagline of it, yeah. which I think people are like, ah, I don't like that. Like, yeah. but he makes roller coasters. Like yeah. that's what he does. And yeah. I didn't get a chance to see mother people that hated it hated it it definitely has a few things in the last 10 minutes where like you know that my, my eyes opened a little wider and i thought oh this is where the f cinema score came from <laughs> yeah uh, but but like i find myself grading and and i did like this movie i recommend it but i also find myself grading movies a little on a curve these days because i look at a movie like mother which is very well made and very ambitious and in a way that I think is very honorable. And mm -hmm. I want to give it points just for that, just for ambition. Yeah, like, as I've grown older, we've talked about this a little bit before, but when you're a teenager, your whole opinion is the most important thing. And it's definitive and cast in stone. And oftentimes it's defined by what you dislike. Because mm -hmm. you're like, oh, 
you guys like that movie? That fucking sucks. I'm more sophisticated than this movie that was made by adults. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I can see what they can't see. Yeah. But that grading on a curve also allows me to enjoy movies that if I'd seen them back then, I would probably dismissed instantly. For example, when I was coming up as like a gore hound, horror loving uh, cinephile, everything had to be in some shape or form dead alive. And if it wasn't that, like, it was a disappointment to me. So were you not into the kind of J-horror stuff that was... Oh, I wasn't into that at all. Yeah. Like, that wasn't really my thing. I needed cinema that was, like, blasted me in the face and, like, entertained me. Even stuff like Frank Hellenlotter's Brain Damage, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, it's not as gory as I thought it was going to be. You know what's funny? In the last year, I watched Train Spotting for the first time. And it was it was fine, but mm-hmm. I knew that like as I was in that very opening scene, you know, yeah. the choose life scene, I thought, man, I can imagine myself in the basement of my parents' house, age 17, watching this and being blown away by it. And I think that if I had kept that kind of like hardened view of movies, my life would be incredibly miserable right now. So you can yeah. see that as a positive or a negative. You'd be alone, unemployed. <laughs> yeah. Being like, well, my opinion is correct and everybody else is wrong. I will never do a podcast with that guy over there. (laughs) His Twitter. I don't like it. (laughs) I think his opinions are probably terrible as well. But no, instead, uh, I get to know Will, see the soft inside that he has outside of that spiky exterior. (laughs) And it allows me to enjoy films like Vampire Clay, which we recently saw at uh, the Toronto National Film Festival, which is a very small film but is very energetic in what it wants to try to do. And I think that's important when you see films like that. Vampire Clay, uh, which some of our listeners probably haven't heard of, but it's a B-Japanese movie that played on the last night of the Toronto Film Festival. Which we will never speak of again, the festival, I mean. Yeah. (laughs) In this context. I I know you're tired of hearing about it, (laughs) but sorry, we live in Toronto. It was was everywhere. (laughs) It's the only movies we could see at that time. Yeah. And Vampire Clay, I think... A lot of people didn't like it. And mm-hmm. I, I thought a lot of people were a little bit unfair to it. Yeah. I, I found it quite charming for what it was. I think you wrote a review for it that basically surmised it perfectly, which is it did exactly what was on the tin. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's called Vampire Clay. Is there some goofy clay that does crazy shit? Yes. And is there violence? Some that I have to admit, I had never seen gags like that in movies before. There's one involving a uh, mathematical instrument Mm -hmm. and what it does to someone that was like, whoa, that's a simple makeup design. But it's nice to see something new. But the key thing about it is, you know, fun makeup, fun practical effects. But I saw a lot of people writing, oh, we've seen this before. Like, Like, it does nothing new. Which, like, begs the question of, like, what do you need from your cinema for it to have value because it doesn't need to be telling this new stories every time finding different perspectives on how to tell them or just doing it right well i think vampire clay just seems bad if you paid 35 bucks for a ticket as opposed to me who got a ticket for free <laughs> yes exactly i mean there's tiff we've <laughs> we've talked about this before as well that like 35 dollars to see most of these films is a lot of money yeah based upon what we experience in a day-to-day when it comes to movie going in the sense that even $15 when you go to the cinema, you're like, eh, this is too expensive to yeah. see, I don't know what film. Any uh, piece of garbage. Some superhero movie or something yeah, like that. Superhero movies. Well, did you see in the news recently that uh, DC Films have announced that they're going to be making a Joker movie that was going to be produced by 
Martin Scorsese and star in some way Leonardo DiCaprio. Really? Did wait? Was DiCaprio confirmed for that? Well, it, that's what the announcement said, and was picked up everywhere. Which makes me wonder, like, that sounds like a parody post. I geez. Um. Well, I know that Todd Phillips is directing it, right? <laughs> Like, but, but Scorsese is producing it. How is that like the... Scorsese, you know, needs money. But like Todd Phillips, like, is he just like a really good talker in the room? Like, what has he made that would indicate that he can make this kind of film? I don't know, but Warner Brothers clearly has kind of a stable of, of directors. Yeah. They have Zack Snyder, Todd Phillips, uh, Ben Affleck, Clint Eastwood. Like, <laughs> Get Clint Eastwood to make a Joker that, movie. I, that would be great. <laughs> like... It's definitely be... a studio that has like a loyal stable of filmmakers. Yeah, so they go to Todd Phillips, I guess, yeah. to be like, all right, we're making this Joker movie and it's going to be real and dark. Yeah. And then the next day they announced, oh, we're also making another Joker movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's not going to be related to that one. I've defended like Marvel superhero movies on this podcast before. But, like, I am so baffled by decisions like this. I'm just so great to finally see the Joker's story told. <laughs> it, will be, it will be interesting to get some new insight into the clown prince of crime. If Martin Scorsese is producing, do you think they could get Jack Nicholson back? Oh, that, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> like, what if he played, like, the Joker? Just old, <laughs> fat. <laughs> How much would you pay to see that movie? $35 at the Toronto National Film Festival? Oh, easily. Opening night film? Easily. Like, did you enjoy him in, uh, what was it, one of the last films that he made? The Departed? The Departed, yeah. No, I think he's pretty bad in The Departed, frankly. <laughs> but he's just doing his Jack Nicholson thing, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. You know, he. I think he's great in Batman. And what I think's really funny is... Uh, we've heard so much about like Heath Ledger or the other guy, Jared Leto, and all the method shit they did and how they were like sleep deprived or they sent dead rats to their co-stars or something to get in character. And, you know, Nicholson was just like up all night partying, like <laughs> yeah. fucking hungover, waltzes onto the set, puts a little makeup on, fucking knocks it out of the park. Well, Nicholson is just Nicholson. <laughs> yeah. Like there's nothing else there. He's yeah. a character actor who got really big roles, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah. And he's also one of those stars that has just kind of been, like, forgotten. Like, nobody says, let's cast Jack Nicholson in this. Well, that's because he's basically retired. He's going to do the Tony Erdman remake. That... Is that still going to be made? Like, I, I think so. Because um, when that movie didn't even get nominated for an Oscar, people were <laughs> like, oh, yeah, and they just got to stop But talking. But it got optioned for a remake with Jack Nicholson and Kristen Wiig, and it was announced as Jack Nicholson's return after 10 years or however long it's been since he last made a movie. So Is he still around? Like, you would know this more than I would, as far as I like, believe being he... photographed at b- b- basketball games. He was at... Kobe Bryant's last game. Yeah, and uh, I think he presented at the Oscars maybe two or three years ago. Well, they always cut to him in the sunglasses, kind of like sleeping, I assume. He looks very unhappy. Well, there's that famous article that came out. Uh, what 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 rag was it from? I can't it was like remember. Daily Mail or something like that. It, it, right? de- it definitely went viral where it was like him saying, I'm looking for one last romance. <laughs> because I will probably die alone. Yeah. Which, you know, me and Will, we can relate to that, right? <laughs> Not... We're going to die together. <laughs> arm in arm. Yeah. Recording a podcast. Probably at that point about Todd Phillips, I assume. Our la- the last episode of this podcast, you're going to hear a gunshot and then 30 <laughs> minutes of dead air. <laughs> It'll be like a Penn and Teller um, what, are dead. Yeah, uh, the, the movie Penn yeah. and Teller are dead. Where Did it, they kill themselves? In yeah, that that's movie? how it ends. Oh, you haven't wow. seen that ending? It ends no, then. I have not seen Penn and Teller are dead. I'm very surprised you didn't want to see the final film from the director of Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> 
where Penn and Teller kill each other and the gag is the cop comes in, goes, oh my God, and then kills themselves. And then everybody who finds their body commits suicide until it pulls back to like the earth and you just hear gunshots and everybody dies. Oh, that's really funny. 